And we back. We're back, baby, from the block to the boardroom. Another episode. Episode 11. Yes, yes, yes. 10 was good, bro. It was. A lot of good feedback. conversation, man. I was, that was a great way to kick off the new year. I Absolutely. enjoyed that. Got Absolutely. some good feedback on it as well. Yeah, and as we continue this year, last year is about branding. This year is about expanding. We got we got some special guests with us today. We Absolutely. got a special producer with us today. We have somebody working on our music and our um, our sound and audio. You know, good, it's a good day. All right, so let's let's introduce our guest, man. Who we Absolutely. got with us? So we we have a uh, a brother that 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 I, I had met recently. Well, we have a lot of mutual friends, Kwame, and his co-founder Keem is here as well, and they represent the Black Currency. Um, I'm gonna segue it over to them. And we're going to talk more about it in the episode so they could tell us more about what the black currency is about, what are the plans for the black currency, the different phases that they're breaking up, their mission statement, and how they're going to deliver it. But there's perfect alignment in what we talk about from the block to the boardroom and what they're building with the black currency. So I just felt like the two mixed hand in hand for them to be one of our first guests in a long time, actually, since we uh, probably had James Johnson. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, who's uh, you know in the middle of his uh, campaign. Good luck to James as well. So, brothers, quick introduction before we actually get to the meat and potatoes of this conversation. Um, Akeem, you're here live with us in the studio. Akeem, I'll let you introduce yourself and just talk briefly about what Black Currency means to you. Yeah, no problem, and thank you for having me. Definitely a, a pleasure meeting y'all in person. I know we spoke uh, briefly before, um, but being able to meet with y'all in person is definitely a blessing. So, a bit about me. Uh, my name is Akeem. I'm from Brooklyn, New York, uh, in particular, Canarsi, and uh in regards to the black currency, the reason why we got started uh, with this platform was due to the fact that, you know, social injustice was at a real uh, high uh, a few months back with the death of George Floyd and a few other uh, individuals. And we felt like we needed a different approach to uh, being able to find justice and to also bring, you know, freedom and liberty to our people. So um, what we decided to do was, you know, focus on creating a platform that was uh, focus mainly on bringing financial education to our people and be able to enable uh, the next generation of millionaires. Um, so that's something that we're very, very, very focused on. And another major statistic that stood out to us during putting together the black currency was that the dollar only circulates in our community for six hours, right? And figuring out what exactly we can do, um, not only from an educational standpoint, but also uh, by in incentivizing uh, black businesses, what else can we do to be able to get that from six hours to eight hours, right? From eight hours to 12 hours, 12 hours to a day, and then so on and so forth. So uh, that's a bit about me. Uh, I'll let Kwame talk a little bit more about uh, the black currency and give an intro about himself, but definitely appreciate y'all having us today. Welcome, Thank welcome, you. fellow Brooklynite. Sure, Hakeem, I appreciate you for taking it off from the block to the boardroom, Trev. Jay, appreciate you fellas for having fun as well. Um, as far as myself, Kwame from Brooklyn as well, Bed-Stuy, um, Crown Heights, two areas I was raised in. I currently live in Los Angeles, so East Coast guy who transitioned west. I think he did a great job of giving you an overview of who we are at the Black Currency. Um, like he mentioned, looking to reduce that gap as it relates to economic equality, looking to bring about change within our community through financial empowerment, um, that's our overall goal. That's our overall mission, right? So um, we do this by teaching stock investing or how to invest in real estate or how to budget um, e-learning based thought processes to allow for our people to be truly free. We think economics is the way for us to get there. So um, as he mentioned, 
one of the stats we focus on too is the net worth of the African-American family in the U.S., right? It's 17K. That's the average net worth. If you look at a Caucasian family, it's $171,000. So being able to reduce that gap um, to allow us to be in the driver's seat as it relates to success within this country that is based on capitalism as a whole. So to my high level, that's what we're about as a black currency, creating that next generation of black millionaires. And I appreciate both of you fellas for having us on the show today. I'm excited for this one. A bunch of cool things in line for the agenda. So yeah, let's get to it. Dope. I love everything that you brothers um, have in your mission and what you plan to do. And it ties hand in hand with a book that I'm currently reading. I've spoke to Jay about it before. And that song by Dr. Claude Anderson is called Powernomics, the plan to empower black America. And it's basically just going through a, a, a myriad of different issues and uh, also solutions and things we got to implement within the black community to develop powerful economic tools to create black wealth and also um, empower uh, the black community here in America. Uh, a lot of times, one of Dr. Claude Anderson's biggest uh, gripes, and this is a man who was in politics for quite some time, one of his biggest gripes with black America is that, you know, we're pushing strongly for social advancement, political advancement, but he, this is his personal sentiment. A lot of these things won't really materialize or hold the value that we wanted to hold until we have economic. So it doesn't mean that, you know, economic advancement. So it doesn't mean that one has to be done only uh, by itself. They can be done simultaneously or conjunction, but we have to focus more on economic advancement to then be able to demand some social change because we have some economic power, we have some economic state, to then be able to, you know, have lobbyists and different things on the Hill that are in our favor because at the end of the day, America was built on capitalism and, and money is the root of it all. So until you have true economic power, you'll never really have power politically or so socially. But we're going to get into it, brothers. Thank you guys for, for coming on here. Uh, we're going to do something that we always do, the normal flow, as we are really big on black mental health here. Flip it to my brother, Dr. J. Tell me how your week's going, where your head is at, how you feeling, King? So, mental, and again, uh, brothers, King, Kwame, thank you for joining us. This is, it's a great time. It's very good energy, right. uh, especially, you know, you fellow, fellow Brooklyn Knights. I'm, I'm heavy on the Brooklyn bias. Very heavy, always going to be heavy. Very heavy on Brooklyn bias. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I only let this slide because I was born in Brooklyn, as Jay knows. I was born in Flatbush, but I grew up in Queens. You know, yeah. I grew up in Cambridge. I grew up in Queens, and I was in Brooklyn all the time with friends, but I'm a Queens dude. You know, I was born in so, but because I was born in Brooklyn, I, I, I let it go. I let it go, but <laughs> so, it's my roots, man. Mental health-wise, uh, where I'm at with it right now is last night I went to my old projects, Brownsville Projects, and we went to see a family friend. And for me, it was just, it was kind of surreal. You know, like you work so hard to get up out of a neighborhood, to get up out of a situation. But then also, I often see what people who came from the hood, when they really make it, their children don't have any kind of perspective on what that life was like and what you went through. So sometimes they can't necessarily repeat your own steps. So for me, having my daughter play on those steps, being inside that same building I was in, at one point, my mother wife had taken, taken my daughter upstairs and she came back and she's like, you know, I just showed your daughter where you grew up at, like y'all apartment where you was at. And it was just so real. And you think about all the stuff that you lose in the hood and meaning, the first time I was shot at was in Brownsville. Second time I was shot at was in Brownsville. I've seen, from like looking out the window as a kid, I've seen 
it was one time when a stray bullet hit a baby in a carriage. Uh, you, you, saw, think, you saw this. Wow. You think about like the friends that was killed in the neighborhood. You know, like you walk past those landmarks. And all you think about all of that negative that comes with the hood when y'all are forced to go against each other. And then I also think, though, about one of the most beautiful things coming from the hood brings you. And that's really... Your family extends more than just your blood. And that's one of the most powerful things. Like, I grew up in neighborhoods where as soon as there was... I would get in trouble. I would be doing something I was supposed to do. Somebody would grab you up. Yo, what are you doing? You're not supposed to be doing this. I know your family. Or as soon as I think I'm in a position where... I shouldn't be here because I'm in the wrong side of town. Somebody else sees, yo, you're such and such son. You're such and such a little cousin. You're my family. You know, like, I have so many aunts and uncles and cousins that's all in blood. I've kind of forgotten where the line of actual blood is. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the best things when you talk about that kind of community. And when you grow up out of that and you do what you're supposed to mean and you move out of the hood, you don't get that no more. Like before, like when you go out of a project building, you know 15 or 20 people in your building are the buildings next to you. Minimum. When you leave and you get into another neighborhood, like let's say I go buy a house in Atlanta, there may be 10 to 15 houses on the block and you don't necessarily know all of those people. So you missed it. And I realized how much I missed that. You know, and um, that's part of the reason why I'm picking the, the hood scripture for today, which is he uses a lot in there where he's talking about uh, any issue. I'm thinking about that kid in the park running around looking for some shit we could start. Any issues, I was right there with it. I brought my dream house, but I've been having nightmares in it. Mm -hmm. Just meaning like I've left, but I couldn't bring everybody with me. So although this is the dream, I don't have everybody to celebrate the dream with me. So that's where I'm at right now. Where you at, brother? That's dope, man. I I, I enjoyed um, just hearing that perspective. Because another thing, I mean, Cambria, you know, St. Albans, Hollis, South Jamaica, for all these areas. My grandma used to live in Far Rockaway when I was a kid. It's not as bad as Brownsville, but you have your you have your pockets, particularly Far Rockaway and South Jamaica. And and, and similar vibe. You know, I used to always we used to always joke, me and my boys that, that lived on two three two, two three one, we would always say, um, as you walking up to Linden, get on the Q four, you'd have one outfit and then as you approach the bus, you would have like a different outfit. But you honestly couldn't even have the whole outfit on because there might be some of my mom's church sisters or some people that she know that's on the bus with me. So you wait really till you get to like Parsons and Archer before you pull your flag out, before you put on your long t-shirt, you know, the different the different accessories that, that went with the attire, um, you know, of, of that time of, of, of teenage youth and that sense of community. But also um, something that I've thought about, you know, I, I haven't, I don't have children yet like, like how you have Liana. But something I've even talked about, and I've even mentioned this to my girlfriend as well, is that whole idea of economic advancement, which is what we're supposed to do, right? That's that's why my parents migrated to America. Um, my sisters and I, you know, luckily all went to college, graduated from college, and went in different career fields. But that, that was the goal, right? So you're supposed to, the next generation is supposed to do better than the generation before it. But a large part of me raises a lot of... Uh, has, has a question because a large part of me wonders if, you know, my, my, my particular dream is to uh, live in an affluent area in PG County. I, li- I like that mm-hmm. area, right? I feel like that area is near D.C. It's not too far from New York, so I could 
quickly come back, come to New York, come check mm-hmm. moms, come check family, whatever. I like that area, right? You have a nice black middle class there. But I often think to myself, I'm like, well, if my family's based there, what are, what are they going to be like little brats? You know, like, what are they, what are they going to be like? Because a large portion of who I am comes from that resiliency that was built in just Absolutely. growing up, you know, from growing up here in New York, spending time back in Jamaica, but like that all led to the character, humble beginnings, you know, humble beginnings. And, and that, that helped to um, mark who I am. So, man, that's, that's spot on that you shared that because, you know, that's, that's what we want to do, particularly a lot of us young black professionals that are, that were first generation college students were the first ones in these spaces of Moody's Kwame you over at uh, Facebook correct Facebook um, you know real estate uh, working in health the DMP like yourself you know our parents didn't do this our grandparents didn't do this not like you know some um, of our counterparts from a different race so it's like their their parents are educated professionals also right our parents, so we're the first ones in this space, uh, in, in, in this professional spaces that we're in across different di- disciplines, and we're trying to take it to a new level as we should. But it's like, how do we still keep those values into the next generation without having them having to uh, live, live live that same life? Mm-hmm. And I think it's difficult. I mean, I, I, I'm not that parent; I have all the answers, but I even speak mm-hmm. to it um, with my older cousin, who I consider my brother. And he, and he said it's, it's, it's difficult because there's, you could teach it, you could show it, but it's nothing like living it you know mm-hmm. even growing up here there was times when i was spoiled and i would go to i would go back to jamaica and not even in kingston go to country where it's like outhouse you know you mm-hmm. and it's like that'll humble you up real quick you know you you know what i mean you gotta wake mm-hmm. up early farm like you know like stuff like that that'll really give you a, a better perspective but um that's dope bro um I, I had a great week since we last met i had a pretty solid week work went well um Enjoyed watching sports this week. There was some good stuff that came on since since we last met. There was some good games. We had uh, the football games, and here we are, the conference championships. Um, thought it was real interesting, and we spoke about both Kyrie and James Harden last episode. I thought it was interesting to watch the Nets fall twice to the Cleveland Cavaliers in the same week. Um, and I know Kyrie went and put on social media that it doesn't matter, or basically, like they'll they'll be on the big stage. I think that's the word, the line that he used, yeah. but. I mean, I don't know. I feel like if you compete, you're competing, bro. It's all the stage, you know? But I know in the long term, they'll be where the Cavs are not. It just, I didn't like the idea that it's like, all right, you let them get two from you within the same week. But it was some, there was some good stuff that was on this week, man. I, I enjoyed that. Um, um, my, my girlfriend and I watched um, this interesting movie with Amari Hard because Amari Hard looks like he's in a lot of stuff these days since Power's Over. Watched this one called Spell. That oh, that's at. the new one that came out. Yeah. Yes, it was supposed to come um, out. There it is. What are you talking about? I'm not going to get too far into detail, but it's interesting. It's like black horror, but interesting. Like it's, it's interesting for uh, uh, for lack of better words. Uh, you know, he, he he's a guy who grew up in um, the Appalachian region, West Virginia, um, but he, he lives out, uh, they don't show exactly where he lives, but he's an affluent lawyer, and he goes back to go visit family. Yeah, and he has an unfortunate about. plane crash, and basically um, give a, a, a family you know, I, I am, right? <laughs> a family, uh, family, that's, uh, family that's involved in some interesting stuff um, taken captive, and yeah. it goes from there. There's a lot. But it's, it's interesting. It's, it's real interesting, to say the least. Um, one thing I will say is that there was a line that I heard from uh, one of the fighters yesterday in the UFC event. I was I was listening to a line from one of the fighters, and it, it led to a, a pretty good conversation I had with, with a friend of mine, Johnny. And... 
this also, I feel like, helped with just what I was even thinking as I was preparing my mental health, how, where am I at for this week, where he basically asks a question, would you say you're more motivated in proving doubters wrong or proving yourself right? He's basically saying that he didn't come into the fight with the mission of, I'm going to prove that there's a lot of naysayers and he doesn't have UFC experience, he has experience in other things, but he's like, my goal wasn't really proving the doubters wrong, my goal was proving myself right. So then we even just thought about that like as, 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 as with life, what motivates you? And um, I was just thinking about a couple of accomplishments that's taken place last month and you know, the past month, and I, 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 would, I would flip this question to you and I would ask the other gentlemen too when we get to them. I could say for myself that I'm more motivated by proving myself right than doubt is wrong. Because when I think about just different situations, whether it's work, whatever the case is, I actually wish you didn't doubt. I don't, I don't really get much satisfaction from you saying, oh, word, I see what you're saying. Like, I wish we was on that same page from the beginning. That makes it easier. You know, I, I'm not really so big on, like, I told you so. But what a good feeling is is when you put the work in and you do stuff and you put your ducks in a row. And, of course, there might be, you know, pitfalls, but they materialize and you prove yourself right. That gives you the confidence to then go on and, and, and do more stuff, you know. Flip it to even, like, what... Uh, you know, black currency is going to speak on a little bit later. I don't know. You do due diligence. You do your research on a particular investment. And the play turns out the way that you want it to go. That just boosted up your confidence for the next move you're going to make. But um, we were just thinking about the different elements of life. And I was like, I think it's just so dope to be motivated about proving yourself right or showing yourself things as opposed to trying to show other people that you're right. Because that almost kind of seems like a, a defense thing to me, right? Like you're trying to more so proving and trying to prove it to yourself. And um, I think when I analyze that, man, I, the week's been great, great mental headspace. Uh, flip it to you, Akeem and Kwame. Um, how you guys feeling? Where your head's at right now? I'm feeling pretty all right. Uh, I think on the last episode, Jay, you mentioned um, losing your grandmother. Um, so I wanted to say my condolences. I, same thing happened to me last year. So that's something at the top of the year, right after Kobe, you know, I ended up losing my grandmother. So having to deal with that, um, and then really managing stress, right? Finding different ways to manage stress um, has been something that I've taken on because I've noticed that, of course, in the black community, one thing that is major is, especially amongst us men, is being able to manage our emotions, right? So something that I think has been pretty big is doing research on emotional intelligence and then also getting a therapist, right? That's another stigma in the black community that we know, like, you know, you're doing therapy, you crazy? And it's like, nah, I'm not crazy, you feel me? I just need somebody else to talk to, right? It's not something that should be looked at in a way where it's negative, but I think, I think it would actually help elevate us as black men if more men actually did therapy. Right. So that's something I think I've been uh, really focusing on. And I think, like you mentioned, in regards to um, figuring out if you're doing it, you know, if you're doing what you're doing for you or is it to show other folks? I think that's something that um, a lot of people need to do reflection on. Right. Um, because social media has its good, but it also has its bad. Right. Uh, the bad, of course, comes with comparison. Right. Um, comparing myself to, you know, whether it be your friends or somebody you don't know, kind of takes away from you figuring out what is going to truly bring you fulfillment. Right. Um, what's going to really bring you purpose and, and impact to the people around you. So that's something that I think has played a big role in regards to kind of stepping back and reevaluating. Why are you here? Right. Like, I think we all have passions. Sometimes I think we're taken away from those passions because um, 
whether it be work or whether it be stress, figuring out how to manage t- manage your time, but um, just figuring out how to get back to who you are and what, what is going to bring you fulfillment in order for you to bring light to other people. Um, so I think this week has been pretty good, just been focusing on that and uh, a few initiatives that we'll talk about later uh, for the Black Currency. So I like that. That's dope. Dope. Yes, sir. Um, as far as my headspace right now, I would say I'm in a pretty good place. I think I touched on a few topics that definitely hit home, but for me, I'm in a place where I feel like this is a new American revolution. I know Pharrell did um, a magazine cover where he touched on the topic as a whole, but in regards to millennials and our emphasis on financial independence, uh, economic equality, uh, generational wealth, right? Like those are topics that we talk about on a regular basis. So when it comes to when I wake up every day, right, it's focused on that particular mission, whether it's within career, whether it's within entrepreneurship. Um, so I'm in a good place. I'm working in, in regards to mindset every day, waking up, meditating, first thing I do in the morning, morning reading for 30 minutes um, before I actually get into the day, not touching social media. So just instilling those good habits from uh, daily routine standpoint to ensure that I'm allowed to get to the goals that I set. So um, there's some planning for 2021. I think when it comes to goals, being very specific with the things that you want to accomplish over the year. So setting revenue targets for um, the black currency, setting targets for investment goals for the year, setting targets for uh, savings goals for real estate ventures that I want to get into. So um, after that, I feel like having that blueprint or roadmap to march towards allows me to be specific on things I need to do on a daily basis to get to those points. So having that plan in place puts me in good spirits today and just looking to execute against that. But overall, uh, I'm good. I'm excited for the present and also the future, right? For myself, for our people, I'm just looking to continue to bring about that change, doing whatever we can to empower economic equality. So I'm good. I'm, I'm in a good space. I can't, I can't really complain too much. I love to hear it. I think the key thing, the key takeaway from all four of our mental health check-ins is outlook and just the way we view ourselves and the way we view our current state and people around us. And I think that's propelling us. Sounds like all four of us are in a very healthy place mentally, you know, which is great. So I'm going to jump into the meat and potatoes of the episode now, brothers. Uh, This past Wednesday, we had uh, President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris's inauguration I'll open the floor. Thoughts, reactions, uh, feelings. Share it, please, Dr. J. So for me, it was really, it was great seeing a black woman on that stage. And I think, like when you come, especially when you come from our neighborhoods, black men and black boys, we just, we revere our mothers. We revere our aunts and, you know, like we know that the system strategically took away a lot of our fathers and you know, like devalued the black family, the the black marriage. So for me it was it was it was good seeing her on that stage. It was just a moment. Seeing her like the, the fist bumps with her and Barack was amazing. Um, you know, like just just seeing that and it's kind of like we're bringing our culture to the front stage. Right. And we had it with Barack, which was amazing. Um, and then we got a chance to have it now with a black woman. And it's dope that it was separate. It wasn't the same. It was separate. And it's, it's also a reminder to the world that the last two times the Democrats won on the biggest stage, black people was on the ticket. So like, keep that in mind. Like The last two times you needed, you needed a win, black people was on the ticket. But I think it was just, it was amazing seeing that. Uh, 
my daughter's daycare put the inauguration on because a black woman was being honored. So I think it was dope that my daughter got to see that live. Thinking about the different women that was talking to me and just saying how like they was crying through it. Like they were shedding tears through it. I, I understand that it, it just hit differently. It like it hit them for Barack and for a lot of us it was we can see ourselves there. And don't get me wrong, right? Like Barack is not necessarily from the slums or the hood like a lot of us, but he was still a black man at the in the highest office. Right. Which meant a lot. So black women identified with that, but then also keeping in mind that black women go through something extra than what black men go through. That's true. Right? Mm-hmm. Like they go through being black and then they also go through being yeah. a woman. Yeah. Um, so for them seeing that, it was able them to relive that directly through their eyes of seeing that for them. And I think that was amazing. I think that was dope. But Fellas. How y'all felt about it? I felt pretty good. You know, I, I feel like it, it brought some empowerment to, like y'all mentioned, not only us as black folks, but black women, right? Which was something that I think allowed us to kind of be excited for what's to come, right? But I think we also got to pay attention to uh, what exactly is going to go into play in regards to laws that they're going to pass, right? And if there's going to be any benefits towards African-American people, what exactly is it going to be through their laws? So, of course, it's pretty exciting to see, but also I think I don't want folks to get distracted and not really pay attention to the laws that are being passed and how it's going to be beneficial to, to our people. So that, I think that's something to truly focus on. But definitely was an empowering moment uh, for black people as a whole. Yeah, agreed. Just to piggyback off to your point, I think even seeing Kamala on that screen to uh, Jay's point, right? Like, she went to Howard, like, she's West Indian, right? Like, she's an AKA. So, even just that point of relation and that point of relatability, right? Like, from the block to the boardroom, it's that specific example, right? This African American woman who comes from similar backgrounds as us being able to become uh, vice president of the United States as a whole is empowering. Um, it's amazing it provides that incentive to both the women and the men of this country who are of african-american descent to, to give us hope um, in regards to the things that we can do so seeing our excellence on on that stage and that screen was fairly amazing um the king's point i'm curious to see what the biden presidency does while in office the fact that they have um the senate as well as the house i think will be helpful in regards to passing bills um i know he mentioned like relief for 10K worth of like student debt for um, people in America in general. So stuff like that sounds good. I just want to see if it actually comes to reality. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I told y'all that episode 10, exactly. man, look out for that guy, Rohit Chopra. Rohit Chopra. Did a lot of research on, on, on student loan debt and how it negatively affects the economy. And Biden put him on the on that uh, on that board. So I think that's a strong indicator that obviously he's going to use the research mm-hmm. that he's been working on for the past 10 years and mm-hmm. use it to implement some policy. That's what Chopra, that's what he specialized in, you know? So the fact that Biden put him on a, a committee, I'm sure he agrees with, with, with the research. Um, I think I think that's a key as a key thing that you guys said because one of the things that we're gonna ask is as dope as the feeling was, mm-hmm. is well, where do we go from here? But before that, before we get there, Jay, you had a good that's idea, and we have a black woman in the room, we have JJ's sister in the room. And we wanted to hey. bring her real quick to the studio to ask her how did she feel about it. You know, we know how we how we felt about it. We shared that. We're very curious to hear how did she feel about seeing that. Absolutely, and, and you know, because we are four black men that are here talking about this issue, but want to be mindful that you know it's, it's it's there's a black woman with us, and she can tell us specifically how she felt about it. So, 
books. Share with us. Hi, everybody. So I was not prepared <laughs> to jump on the mic. All the surprise. I was not prepared. Um, just sitting in the corner of my business. Um, it was, it was, it was breathtaking. Um, honestly, it was the out of M. JJ can attest to this. I am not a TV person at all. If you're in this house with me, 95% of the time, there's music playing, there's a podcast playing. I am not a TV person. Um, but that was one of the things I woke up, one of the days I woke up and I literally put the TV on first thing in the morning, CNN, because I didn't want to miss anything, right? I didn't want to miss that part of history. And for me, right? Not only is she a woman of color, but she's a woman of color who went to an HBCU, right? <laughs> At HBCUs, let's go, right? Um, she's a woman of color that went to an HBCU. Um, you know, her, there is no way they can take her blackness from her, right? And I feel like, you know, that, that's always come into question when we get onto these stages, especially when they are mixed race, right? Mm -hmm. Barack's blackness was questioned when he started to, you know, run or, you know, start to campaign. Well, he's half black. He, you people know, do, people do books. Yeah, you know, people in our community have questioned her. Black, they, they, and, yeah. and, 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 and this is, yeah. and so the conversation, and, and, and the conversation is never about, right. And so I've, I've had this argument with tons of people, right? Like me celebrating the moment doesn't negate the fact that there is still work to do. Absolutely. Right. I can celebrate the mo this historical moment mm -hmm. that we have and still say, OK, history was made. Now let's get to work. Yeah. Right. And so for the day, after coming off of four years of chaos, after coming off of the capital almost being overthrown. Right. After all these things that have happened just in 2020 alone, having a day where we can just see a black woman stand as not just the first black woman, but the first woman, right? Like, right? Like 200 years ago, she would have been a slave, right? Like a 50, 60 years ago, she wasn't able to vote, right? Like she couldn't own a bank account. And now she is on a platform becoming the second most powerful person in our country. Like we have to sit there and, and honor that. And so I was, really frustrated with the people who was like, y'all are sitting here acting like racism is going to end tomorrow. No, that's not, that's not, that's not what we're saying. Mm -hmm. That's not what any person is saying. We are saying that, bro, under Trump, each day we woke up like, all right, what did he tweet? What did he say? <laughs> right? right? Like what, 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 what did he do? Right. And not just like under siege mentally, our bodies were like, like we were on defense, every single day right and not saying that's going to completely shift but i think the country collectively were was able to have a moment to just breathe right just breathe and, and say like all right okay Here, here's some change like i, I like i put it to one of my kids said because i work with young people they said miss lauren it felt like an adult was finally back in charge wow. and these are middle schoolers that's right that's like Right. So like even our young people are like, OK, a, an adult is finally about to to do something. And not to mention, you know, credit. Let's give credit to credit with dude. Now that, you know, black women really pushed this election. 
right? And so just thinking about that, right? And how, like JJ said, we show up. When it's time to do the work, we show up. And to show us showing up in that magnitude to really make a change was just, it was, it was so, 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 so moving. But now it's time to get the real the real, real work done. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so that and was Warren, a great. I, I really appreciate that feedback. Yeah, that was definitely well said. Well said. And, and, that's, and that's perfect segue into what we have next on the agenda. And that is where do we go from here? And we, we touched on it a little bit just now. Keem, Kwame, both you guys touched on it. And I guess I'll just echo everybody else's sentiments. Um, it felt great to see. It felt great to see. It was amazing. Um, Kamala, um, you know, I'm a naturally going to big her up because her dad was Jamaican. Her mom's um, of Indian descent, but her dad's Jamaican. Uh, a little bit more connection to her, too, because she went to a HBCU. Um, and she, she, she proudly reps that age. She proudly reps Howard. You know, Jay, even though you and I didn't go to HBCUs, we have strong ties to the HBCU communities. I've been to a variety of HBCUs all over. You and I are both Greek, you know, mm-hmm. so being Kappas, and she's an AKA, that was dope to see, too. And I don't she's Kappa she, Sweetheart, she, she too. Reps, and, oh, yeah, she, and she is a Kappa Sweetheart. <laughs> that's a fact. That's a fact. But she reps it, like, publicly, too. Like, not Absolutely. even like, oh, that's something I did back in my time at Howard. Like, she's still very active in it right she from the mecca which is dope right right. she's like that's the alpha chapter like that's the the birthplace of black sororities is where she's from and she reps that which is amazing you know i i I thought that was real dope but um sentiment visual feeling aside i guess going down to this week and we kind of touched on it just now when we want to see you know there's some talks that student loan debt might get canceled or significantly reduced for a lot of Americans. That looks good. And that's something that we know affects a lot of us greatly because as we kind of talked about in the beginning of mental health, a lot of us are first generation students. And we mm-hmm. had to fill out that fast form. We had to take out those loans mm-hmm. because there was no uh, you know, college savings plan or no trust fund put aside mm-hmm. or shit, even just the income level where daddy or mommy could just cut that check and pay the tuition, and, and that's it, you know? Um, a lot of us had to, uh, you know, incur that debt to financially uplift ourselves to the levels that we are now where we're going. And that can continue further when you go into graduate study and, and even further down the road. So, you know, a lot of us black people, we, we carry that student loan debt because mm-hmm. that's what we needed to even get into that space of higher Absolutely. education and academia. So it's something that we're curious to see. Um and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of different things I think that we're curious to see. I, I think a key thing, though, is um, what exactly are we going to demand? You know, we, Lauren touched on it. We all touched on it. We showed up for this election. You said uh, yourself, Jay, the last three times the Democrats have won that big ticket and gotten to the White House. Um, well, three elections, right? Yeah. Barack twice and then this election, oh, yeah. Joe Absolutely. Biden, right? So it's three different elections, if you think about it. Um, there was a black person on the ticket, you know, Barack twice, Kamala's the VP. So we know our worth, you know, sometimes it's been trying, you know, it's been diminished and say, well, you know, black people are really only 13% of the U.S. population. And then how many of us are actually registered to vote? So, you know, and it's coming from some of our own people. Like, what's the point in voting? It's going to be bad for us either way. And trust me, they could get their way without our vote. And I don't really know if that's accurate. You know, the past elections have shown that. But the question is, all right, now now the work that we did yielded the result that most of us wanted. What are we now demanding? 
you know, what's, what, what policies that could affect us are we demanding socially, politically, economically? And, you know, we're going to talk a lot about it on this episode. I think the economic things are going to be the key things that we need to demand because that will really push our mobility. Absolutely. I th- so I think some of the, and I think we can use this as a great segue to get into our guests, uh, black businesses. I think that's one of the strongest things that we need to start demanding because like you were talking about at the top of the episode with the Poweronomics book and ways to effectively create sustainable change and sustainable growth. Like it's from, I'm a healthcare expert, so I'm always lean towards healthcare things of getting rid of some of the disparities in our communities, especially the black maternal mortality rate, because black women and black families just deserve to go into hospitals to give birth and come back out as a very joyous moment. Right now, it's not like that. So I think some of those things are important, but even more important would be if we could create our own black birthing centers where that also becomes money that stays in our community, that we staff with black people, we staff with midwives. So when you go in and you look at somebody you feel more comfortable, it'll mean something. right? It, it, there's a reason why the study came out saying that black babies do much better when they are attended to by black doctors. Mm-hmm. It's just a level of comfort by looking at somebody and identifying with them. And I think a big part of that comes to... How do we create those kind of opportunities? And a lot of that is through businesses, through economics. So I think, it's, I think that's good that we have these two gentlemen here with us to talk about some of their plans and some of the ways we can uh, replicate that to create this change. Absolutely. And gentlemen, before um, I hand it over to you, I, I wanted to uh, leave a, a thought with you that possibly how that ties into black currency. So one of the chapters I was reading in Poweronomics actually early this morning before heading over here, um, Dr. Cloyd Anderson was mentioning some of the impediments that we have to black self-sufficiency and competitiveness. And the reason why he said self-sufficiency is because a strong economic community, if you look at some of the other demographics, um, racial demographics uh, in, in the United States, they're self-sufficient for the most part, right? That, that goes back into the idea of that dollar circulating for, mm-hmm. for more hours. The reason why it can circulate is because it's so, you know, a lot of times we have to have that dollar go external because that just doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. You know, we know about Carver, I think it's like one financial, I forgot the name of it, but for the most part, we're going to bank with one of the large banking corporations. Who are the large banking corporations? You know, JP Morgan, Chase, mm-hmm. Wells Fargo. So these are white owned banks. Um, there might be another business that we need, you know, we own a lot of uh, nail salons, uh, beauty, barbershops, this, that, uh, food places. But there's a lot of businesses that for the most part, if you want something done, you're probably going to have to go outside of the black community. Mm-hmm. So for the most part, the dollar is not circulating because we don't have a strong, self-sufficient community. We, we rely on other communities for our economic needs. So the three impediments that, that he, he said that are really... Um, uh, that, that, are, that are really deterring our, our self-sufficiency and are able to compete, our ability to compete against other uh, racial demographics in the United States. Um, this is historical. There is and was a maldistribution of wealth and resource powers. So that goes back to post-World War II, the New Deal programs, redlining, um, housing laws, you know, where we weren't allowed to buy real estate. So we don't, even if you had the money, you don't um, have wealth built up 
You know, there's a there's a good book by Richard Rothstein called The Code of Law that talks a lot about that of how um, unequal housing policies, you know, really shortchange the black economic base. And this is all post World War Two. So the invention of towns like Levittown by Samuel Levitt on Long Island, all these different things. What took place in Hyde Park in Chicago post World War Two, um, but that could be a whole separate conversation. But we're aware historically that wealth distribution, you know, post Emancipation Proclamation, post Jim Crow, even post New Deal going into civil rights, it never was distributed equally. It never didn't come our, it didn't come our way. There was institutions that made sure that uh, it, it, it went other directions. So that's that's one thing. We're we're starting from behind, right? We that that's a major impediment. We have that. You know, we're starting the race. They were already running. We were still in the locker room. Now we're trying to catch up, mm -hmm. you know? The second impediment is that we, and it's an internal issue, an inappropriate psychosocial behavior pattern towards economics. So essentially what he's going to, what he starts breaking down in that chapter that I was reading this morning is he starts to talk about our mental outlook on how we view money, on how we view business, and some of the practices and some of the, uh, some of the, the things that we believe, it's kind of like Bob Marley said, so you have to emancipate yourself from mental slavery. We have a, a bit of a mental slavery from not having a history of it with money and with business. And if we continue these practices, it will continue to be an impediment. And the last one is kind of goes back to what we were saying with the election is uh, we don't have a national economic and political empowerment plan. And that's a specific plan that we demand politicians on all levels, but mostly you know, it starts local, but it goes up to it on a national level of what exactly we demand economically for the black community, not for minority community, not for um, just poor, just specifically the black American community, that 13% of the nation, what do, what do we want? I know Master P did a great job at saying it was that we should get 13% of access to all uh, resources, right? If we're 13% of the population, give 13% of federal contracts, uh, if it's trucking, to black businesses. If give us 13% of access to, you know, open up black-owned banks, whatever the case is, but equal representation as for the portion of the population that we make up. So those are the three impediments that Dr. Claude Anderson shared that, um, you know, Akeem, we were talking about a little earlier before we started, I think really touch on a lot of what the black currency is about. So brothers, I segue the floor to you to um, share your thoughts on that. Talk about the black currency. Um, I know we spoke on the phone before the different plans and the phases of how you're going to break out the black currency and how this could be an effective uh, tool to uplift the community. Hello? Yeah, so I mean, as far as just touching on like where do we go next, I think specifically what I would look for from the Biden administration is like right now, for example, they're looking to get like 1.7 trillion passed in regards to money for stimulus packages, money for that, the student loan programs that um, we mentioned before. But I think even with the PPP loans, right? Like for example, in 2020, all of that money went to a majority of big corporations, right? Corporations that didn't really even need that additional money to survive during the pandemic that we were facing last year and that we're still in this year. So like specific requirements about how that money is divided and split within this country to allow for businesses that were closed at a rate that Prices back in comparison to non-black businesses, right? So taking that money and having specific requirements about how it's spent within the black community, making sure it goes to diverse small businesses instead of just those big corporations, that's something I would look for 
on the Biden administration to implement as well because it's a need. Um, I've learned just in entrepreneurship myself, right? Like it's other people's money, right? People are leveraging grants or loans or um, other forms of income to allow for their businesses to grow and scale. So even having access to those resources, I think is something that's going to be essential for um, black businesses to thrive within this country as a whole. Um, but that's one thing I will look for. And then as it relates to the black currency, to answer your question, Trev, I think how we really plan to get to our overall mission, it's five different phases that we plan to go through. So social media, that's what we launched first. Um, you can check us out on Instagram at the black currency, uh, fairly straightforward to, to find on that page, you'll see different infographics on stock investing, real estate, um, budgeting. We've done a ton of just dope IG lives with different leaders within their industry, whether it was like Ted NYC sharing their story within streetwear, passing on that knowledge to other folks within that same market to allow them to grow and be successful when creating the brand. Um, so well, I mean, make sure you just caught that handle. That's at the Black Currency on Instagram, right? Correct, correct, correct. Follow the comments at the Black Currency. Sorry, Barnaby. Yep. yep. So that's our first phase. Ton of great information there. Follow us. As far as phase two, um, we plan to release merchandise. So being able to take a portion of proceeds from um, sales for merchandise to be able to donate to a like-minded organization that's focused on the economic empowerment of the Black community. Um, the third is really uh, possibly a little Black book. So creating a coffee table book that has a QR code where you can scan that QR code and be redirected to a website to purchase products from a Black-owned business. I would say fourth is really a mobile app, so creating the Black Yelp or the Black Amazon. And fifth is really focused on creating a e-learning platform that allows for people to get self-service tips on stock investing, um, real estate, budgeting, really those skill sets that you need to generate wealth as a whole. So in regards to where do we go from here, how we plan to get to that mission, um, those are the five phases. And then what I'm expecting from Biden and Kamala them being in office now, we need more help as it relates to OPN, as it relates to how those PPP loans are distributed within this country in general to allow black businesses to grow and succeed. Because um, to your point, the playing field was never level, it was never fair. So we need specific rules, intentional practices, but it's to be put into place to allow for change. So uh, that's, that's what's kind of on my mind when it comes to next steps. Dope. I mean, I think with the rollout of those those phases um, all successfully, I think the the augmentation of, of just our mindset and just the knowledge. I think the key thing that the black currency sounds like it delivers to me is knowledge, the know-how and the intel of what we can really do financially and how we can start with ourselves and then ultimately with the community. Um, Keem, I know you had a, a, a whole detailed plan of how you were going to really work out that e-module part, right? Yeah. The part where folks can go in, log in. Right now, you, as uh, Kwame mentioned, there's a social media, and that's easy, right? That's, yeah. that's how, you know, as, as you guys pick up and get more uh, followers, it can share, I can share, oh, look, they posted a dope post. Um, so that, that's, that, that wets the palate for mm -hmm. the people that want even more and actually want to start taking a course on something, you guys have a plan to deliver that too. Yeah. So if you could, you know, speak to me about that, what's, what your plan is with that, what direction you want to take it in, I think that would be great. Yeah, no problem. I think for the e-learning the e platform, what we're looking to do is create a, a platform similar to Skillshare or Udemy. And basically, it'll be easy to access for, you know, black and brown folks to get access to information, beginner information to really uh, 
really in-depth information related to a few topics that uh, Kwame had mentioned related to real estate, related to stocks, related to crypto, um, related to commodities and different uh, investment vehicles that are um, going to produce income for folks, you know, while they sleep. I think that's that's very uh, essential. I know we, we spoke about briefly too being self-sufficient. Right. And I think that starts with education. Right. Figuring out where exactly we can put our dollars that we're making right now to be able to work for us. Right. Uh, to have our money work for our, for us while we're, you know, sleeping. I think that's the key. And then, you know, with that platform, I think it would allow a lot of uh, individuals to be able to grasp what it takes to really build generational wealth. Right. Uh, one thing I usually say is, you know, generational wealth, of course, is the goal. But I think you can't leave out the generational knowledge part. Right. To, to managing to managing that wealth. Uh, that's that's pretty key. And like another two that I, I typically like to focus on as well, along with generational wealth and generational knowledge is generational impact. Right. Like how how is what you're doing with your platform impacting folks in a positive light? Right. Like that's something that I think um, a lot a lot more folks should focus on and figure out how they could use their platform to bring impact to those inner cities that need it. Right. Like to see a familiar face in in your city and talking about ways to bring wealth i think that's that's very essential so with that platform we're hoping to make it um you know very similar to you know udemy or skillshare and have it be accessible you know um in different languages i think that's going to be key too so not really focus solely on just the us of course that's going to be a starting point but if we could take it international i think that would take it to a whole nother level as well so that's definitely what we have in store and um i think it should be very uh very, what we are looking to do is also to bring it to uh, high schools, right? I think if we could get it, find a way to get it into the, into the Department of Education, uh, that could also be something that allows us to bring that knowledge to folks that look like you, you and me. Um, so that's truly the goal with that e-learning platform. So to, uh, two things. One, quickly, I think you should start before high school, honestly. Mm -hmm. uh, and as somebody who was looking into starting like a after school program or just a program that helped children. It was mm -hmm. a platform called BMEN, Blackmail Enrichment Network. And nice. as somebody who lives with an after school director, so for those of you who don't know, when Lauren jumped on, she's the after school director and she manages millions of dollars a year. Mm -hmm. They want you to start earlier with children because I don't know how many people know this, but it blew minds when I, when I found out. They determine the amount of jails that they're gonna build based on second graders' testing scores. Mm -hmm. Which wow. is absolutely ridiculous, right? Imagine that as your score, your like your national score in second grade is going to determine to a group of people if you need to be in jail or not. Absolutely ridiculous. But they get funding for coming out to lower elementary. So finding out a way to translate what you're doing mm -hmm. to learning objectives for second graders, third graders, and then switching that over for when they get into middle school. And I think what happens is you you make them so indulged in it that it becomes a habit. And I think it touches on your points when you said generational knowledge. Mm -hmm. And and like I think about like let's take Jay Z for example, because I was just watching Fade the Black the other day. Yeah. Um and for those who don't know what Fade the Black is, it's when Jay Z said he was retiring from rap, so he made a documentary about the black album because it's supposed to be his last album. And I think about they had a bunch of money then, right? And even before then, you know, like a rapper gets on, they get hot, they make a bunch of money. That's generational wealth because you can legitimately buy your family, your, your, your nieces, nephews, your children, 
houses, stock, college funds, all of that. Mm-hmm. That generational knowledge that you're talking about is how can I make sure that you now replicate what I just did? Exactly. Because if I can't teach you that, it doesn't mean anything. Exactly. Right? So making sure that when our children are growing up, they are indul- they indulge in this. Because there's a difference between the way our kids are raised and the way other people's kids are raised. And when you are making sure that they learn this, cool. So second, third, fourth graders, they're learning about the black currency and what it means and they start to understand it. So even if you don't have the money, you start having the knowledge because eventually you'll get to the money. So you start having the knowledge. But then also it helps because when they get to the money, that generational wealth, they'll understand the kind of generational impact that you was talking about of how to apply that, how to make change. So even bringing it back to Jay-Z and Fade to Black, you think about Jay back then and what he was, I remember one time, I can't remember what the issue was, but he got up in front of somewhere, they had asked him to speak and his exact words were, we need to remind our elective officials that they are elected. And people was like, that's it? That's what you got? But everybody was expecting him to do more. But you think about now what he does, right? He can help Barack get elected. He can get 21 Savage out of jail from being detained and deported. He can pay Little, Way, pay Little Wayne's taxes because he understands the impact he has with these certain individuals and what they're also going to impact. He understands, I'm going to start title just because black people and people that look like me need a streaming business, a streaming platform that's going to treat us correct. He understands that he can start Rock Nation Sports because he can impact much more people being sports agents than he can do just owning a small percentage of the Nets. So I think all of that stuff that you are doing is dope. And I didn't mean to jump in and cut you off. I just wanted to highlight some of the stuff that I was hearing on generational wealth, generational impact, generational knowledge. I think that's dope. And, and, and on that topic, since, since, since you mentioned it, and Jay, you went to it further, um, just even thinking firsthand experience, one of the key things I think that's real cool with, with the generational knowledge, even in comparison to some of my colleagues, right? People I've worked with, whether at, at JP Morgan or at Moody's, and just had discussions with them. And it kind of ties into the educational portion as well, um, as you mentioned, Jay, because a lot of that what takes place is it's forecasted that your academic trajectory, there's not too many like catch-up success stories. Pretty much like if you're doing bad in elementary school, you probably will do bad in middle school as well. By ninth grade, you're so far behind and you're so frustrated, you're likely to just drop out because it's a building block, right? If you don't get those early blocks built, it's only going to build. Maths, maths particularly, math, reading, these are only things that are going to get more complicated as the grades go on. But one thing I've seen firsthand and, and had discussion with colleagues, which is real dope with um, generational knowledge, even before you get to generational wealth. So I've had some colleagues, uh, most of them um, white, who came from upper middle class families, right? Dad was college educated as well. Mom was college educated, probably on a board of something or, you know, like, they, they, this, they, they, they're familiar with this world. Yeah. Now, they themselves might not have academically had it all together, right? They might have, you know, been on a skateboard, hipster mm-hmm. flow, you yeah. know, whatever whatever the case was. They weren't really academically on their grind. They might not even have went to college directly out of high school. They might have took a little bit more than a gap year off. Mm-hmm. But eventually, 
They graduated. Probably dad or somebody in their network was able to get them into the door, into invest in bank and whatever the key was. But here's the thing. Once they got there, they knew exactly what to do. Even though they spent like most of their late teenage years smoking up, having mm-hmm. fun, like once they got they they mind right and they just they knew exactly what they needed to do. They knew exactly what they needed to do with their money because they had what? The generational knowledge. Exactly. The game plan was already there, what they needed to do with their four oh one K, what you need to invest in, XYZ. And I think that really made me realize how we're really starting in the backfield because even those of us who are always on it and always knew exactly how we wanted to do it, we don't have that. We, we still have to seek the knowledge, right? When the knowledge is there, you have the, you have the luxury of picking and choosing when you want to apply it, right? So you, all, you already know exactly what real estate can do for you, what certain investments can do for you, X, Y, Z, all these things that we have to learn along the way. And I just thought that was real interesting. I was like, man, generational knowledge goes such a long way because once you've seen something growing up your whole life, it's already instilled in you. Yep. You know, you probably heard your parents mention things in their investments when you was a little kid. Even though you weren't paying attention to none of that by choice, when you were ready to tap into it, it's all in. As opposed to we ready to tap into it. We got to now go seek. We have to go look for that knowledge. So... I think generational knowledge is uh is, is 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 so key. But fellas, keep 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 enlightening us on the black currency. I'm sorry, you know, we just we we thought those were, were good points. Um yeah. but just keep go ahead and keep enlightening us on what you guys think think is, is really important and the key things that the black currency can help to deliver that could also help to shift things in the black community. Yeah, so I would say, you know, next month, of course, is probably one of the biggest months for us, of course, it being Black History Month, right? Um, So one of the key things that we do want to take a look at for that month is similar to like how you guys start this podcast, the mental health, right, Um, around that. So what we've been doing was we've been reaching out to black psychologists to bring them on to do a IG Live uh, segment to just talk about their experience, right, with not only clients, but their upbringing and what led them to go into that field. Um, so I think that's something that's definitely going to be uh, pretty vital um, because I feel like that component, like you mentioned, uh, I think is generational when it comes to financial trauma too, right? Um, that's something that I think you see, like, folks in the hood will pass down welfare, like how... Rich folks pass down wealth. Absolutely. Right? And I feel... now. We snap snap for poetry. I'm not even... And and, and I don't mean to cut you. No, you're good. Part of that financial trauma also comes... And Jay, we talked about this on a prior episode. We were talking about distrust with medicine. Mm -hmm. We were talking about all the negative feedback with the vaccine. I was Mm -hmm. like, well, you have to understand the history... Exactly. ...that we have with medicine, you know, being test subjects against our, our knowing and things mm-hmm. of that nature, right? That goes to financial as well. A lot of black Americans, black people in America, we've had negative experiences with the modern financial system, banks, things of that nature. This goes back to even the Freedmen's Bank. Yep. You know, that's a whole different combo, yeah. but <laughs> folks look, look into what the Freedmen's Bank was about right after Reconstruction mm-hmm. and how that worked out for black people, which is why a lot of black people in the South was like, man, put your money under the mattress, because if you put it with them, you're going to lose it all. And as a result of that, we did that out of trauma, but we lost out on investing and years of investing in financial vehicles. So I just thought that was, because as you mentioned, and we passed that on. 
Same way you mentioned we passed down welfare. Mm-hmm. We all, you hear your mom or your dad always say that your grandparents always talk about their distrust with banks, their distrust with big corporations, distrust with the stock market. So naturally, aren't you going to have a little bit of distrust too? Because everybody around you that was an adult from you was a little kid been telling you about how that, oh, that stuff is shady. Don't mess with that, you know? So I just yeah. thought that was key because trauma gets passed down too. Somebody, mm-hmm. knowledge gets passed down, misinformation or bad experiences gets passed down. But keep exactly. going, brother. Keep preaching. Keep preaching. Yeah. So I was, I, we was talking about like how we could kind of tie that, right? The mental health component to the finances. And that's something that's going to be a big topic, I think, for us in February and figuring out like what exactly are some things that folks can do, right? I think just getting started and figuring out in regards to mental health, what are some steps that, you know, black folks could start to take in order to tie that into their finances to be a better steward of their money, right? Because I think subconsciously we kind of overlook that effect that it has on how the way we manage our money, right? The trauma that has came not only, of course, financially, but just, you know, uh, black families as a whole, right? And how that plays a factor into how exactly we manage our money. So that's something that's going to be a pretty big topic um, for February. Um, And then just bringing more, of course, always highlighting black businesses, um, incentivizing black businesses, right? On every Friday we have um, an initiative that we do, which is uh, Currency Fridays. We basically highlight different businesses, black businesses, um, in order to get uh, our audience to basically incentivize and uh, bring in light to those black businesses. So that's something that we're going to continue to push um, and uh, also highlight different business owners as well, um, just to bring light to folks that aren't getting, of course, they might have a, a pretty good following, but I think you could always create that win-win relationship with those black businesses, right? And I think that's also going to enable us to kind of focus on the supply chain of black businesses, right? We always, like we said, the dollar never circulates longer than six hours because we're always going out looking for. And the majority of that six hours, I remember we had a call, me and Kwam, we had a call with uh, a gentleman. He had told us like the majority of that six hours is focused on beauty and barbershops. That's where a majority of that six hours goes to, right? Um, And it's like, we could do better than that, right? But I think it all starts with organization and and education. And that's really what we're, we're about when it comes to the black, the black currency. So um, that's a bit about what, we're, what we have in planned and what we have planned for uh, this year. And we're hoping to do a lot of big things. We feel like, you know, um, we definitely don't want to keep the, the picture too small. So we definitely like to focus in on the big picture. And how else can we impact, you know, those around us? I like that. That's dope. I, I think the approach and I think the different phases and attacking it from, from different angles will definitely be effective. And it will have different effects. You know, as mm-hmm. you mentioned, if you implement curriculum, um, into schools as mm-hmm. getting the youth as well as you know sharing information with adults uh, I like the fact that the, the black currency is trying to educate and enlighten black people across all age demographics you're not just looking for a particular age group because it's it's, it's it's a it's such a vast issue we have so you know there's going to need a need for multiple simultaneous mm-hmm. working parts at the yeah. same time to, to get there um I think you, you need to also educate. Y'all should also be talking about educating people across professions. Mm. And I say that as, as a nurse and in healthcare, I'm just now learning about financial literacy. So when y'all walked in, that meeting that I was on is, it was a series of financial literacy of investing in your 401k, investing in your 403b. Like, what are the differences if you tell your 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 company's 401k that you are aggressive versus conservative where they're going to be putting your money at 
Right. And we had somebody who was just talking about saying that she had put her money somewhere and she had told them she was very conservative because that's how she was taught. Mm-hmm. Passing down that, when you talked about passing down welfare versus passing down wealth, she was taught, you know, be conservative, keep your money under your mattress. So for her, it was, no, uh, I'm conservative. She looked, all her money were in bonds. Mm. Bonds not moving right now. One of the good things from the Trump presidency had been that the market had continued to grow from what Barack, from what Barack had done. So you were missing out on a bunch of opportunity to make more money. And we know that it takes money to make money. And the more money you have, coincidentally, the more money you make. And just meaning like if one person put in 10000 and another mm-hmm. person put in 100000 the person that put in 100000 they're doing the same exact thing. They're making much more money. So you learn that because in the healthcare field, often we're taught, y'all just focus on healthcare. Don't worry about it. We'll handle y'all finances. Right, you same thing is probably going on with the engineers, and while the financial people are doing finances, and you understand that, so definitely expand that on what y'all doing. When you talk about looking for uh, addressing the mental health, mm-hmm. don't just look at black psychologists. Look at black psych nurse practitioners. Mm-hmm. Look at one of the things that I just learned this probably in the last five years. One of the people that do therapy is licensed uh, medical clinical social workers. Yeah. Because And they get some of the most overall perspectives because they deal with children and they deal with how the community affects you as well. So definitely expand it. I'm, yeah, I I'm, appreciate that. I'm excited to see what y'all brothers are doing. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Very excited, that. man. And, and Jay, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head too regarding the uh, across professions. Mm-hmm. I think that kind of goes back to the conversation we was having about generational knowledge. Because I think one thing other races in this country have is it really doesn't matter what field of profession you decide that you want to go into you have a level of financial acumen because it's been practiced in your family for quite some time so whether you want to go into theater or you want to go into healthcare whatever you didn't have to major in economics or finance you still have a, a, a level of knowledge of finances and even if you don't yourself it's a quick call away it's mm-hmm. direct family that could see your uncle mm-hmm. who's a top accountant who could tell you about this or you know, and that's something that um you know would be dope because even with the podcast we have for um ourselves from the block to the boardroom, I was I was telling Jay I was talking to a mutual friend of ours, um he's an educator, middle school educator, and I was telling about the podcast. He's like, oh that was one of the topics, and I was like, yeah. He's like, oh man, I never really tapped in because I, I thought it was just all finance talk, and mm-hmm. I was like, I mean. There is some financial talk in terms of sharing knowledge about mm-hmm. finances, but it, it, it's vast. But it also just kind of goes to show, I think, in our particular community, it's like if you are in a different field or a different discipline, you kind of just kind of lump all of that stuff. as just, oh, that's that finance world, stocks, investments, this, mm-hmm. this, that. And you're not really looking into that, thinking about that so much, much later. And I think what you guys are doing can help to just... Integrated more into people's everyday life. Just something to just keep keep on top of mind, you know? Yeah. So that's dope, fellas. That's dope. Um, at the Black Currency, y'all. At the Black Currency on Instagram. Definitely look out for them. Um, we got Kwame and Akeem here, two, two-thirds of the co-founders doing dope stuff. So we're going to segue to more of the, the, the lighthearted part um, of our episode. We always do this where we start discussing uh, more cultural things. So there was a film... 
um, that we all saw uh, recently came out. It was directed by uh, Nate and Daniel Parker. Um, he had also did the um, movie that was on Nat Turner a couple years ago. So he made a movie called American Skin. This movie's available on Amazon Prime. It's also available on Apple TV. Um, you can rent it. I'm not sure if anywhere is streaming it for free, but it's only $5. Um, if you can't spare that, I would definitely uh, recommend taking that in. So American Skin, man, I'll just open the floor. Let's, let's discuss what it's about. What were some of the themes, the key takeaways? Uh, floor is open, fellas. Feel free to jump in and, and, let, and let's dissect this film. Listen, I'm going to start. Hot take. I think Nat per Parker. Nate. Nate Parker. Sorry. I'm thinking of Nat Turner. <laughs> Nate Parker deserves an Oscar for his performance in this movie. Mm. I felt every emotion that he displayed throughout this movie when he was displaying it. Mm. Right? Um, and you talk about... So it's a movie about Nate Parker's a father. He has a 14-year-old son. His son is killed by police. And then they start showing backgrounds on the son. And like the son has this very interesting argument with his friend that's in the same grade as him. So the son goes to a private school that is predominantly for white kids. And the son and the friend goes to a public school that's for black kids. And the son is telling him, the son is telling his friend, yo, look. <laughs> He's like, look. If you are pulled over by the police wrongly or you are stopped by the police wrongly and they are trying to arrest you, it's your constitutional right to stop them from arresting you. And the friend is like, no, you're not. What kind of garbage are you talking about? He's like, where do you get that from? And then the son quotes the Supreme Court, the highest court in America. The son quotes this like, this is what it is. Nate Parker gets so concerned that his son is talking this way comes in to be like, what are y'all talking about? What's going on? And the friend is like, you know, please tell him that he's wrong. And Nate Parker is like, well, theoretically, he's not wrong. Because theoretically, he's not. Theoretically, but then he's like, but in a realistic society, when you are black and look like us, you can't do that. Um, and then I'll, I'll stop there and I'll let Akeem um, jump in and I'll let Kwame jump in. But And then I'll come back in at the end of it. But that's just some of the background of that. Absolutely. Yeah, I thought I thought that scene was was uh, definitely an eye opener because it basically told him like you know that those laws weren't written for citizens that look like you to be honest. So when that situation actually occurs, like all of that jargon is going to be jargon in that actual situation if you are faced with the police. So like you might like he told him like you got to toss that out because it's less likely that it's going to work because of the color of your skin. Right. Um, so I thought that scene was definitely uh, one that stood out and I had, had took a few notes on that as well. And then I think shortly after that um, situation, I think Omari, I think his name inside the, the movie is Durwood. I think. Yeah, I think Omari. I think so. Omari's Omari name is. Character? Yeah, I think I think his name is. That was, uh, and, it was and it was funny because they were both vets, too. Yeah. You know, former um, comrade. And, and, and that's, you know, it's interesting how. I'll just say way that even current events talking about the, the, the Capitol riots, how they were showing a lot of people that saw in the Capitol had a military background. Mm -hmm. But I also find it interesting how a lot of brothers who have served in the military come home with a different feeling. It doesn't necessarily renew their patriotism towards America. They come home with a almost hatred or mm -hmm. you did me wrong type of feeling to America. You know, I, I thought I was going to get 
a GI bill for, for, for college or I thought I was going to get the, a GI bill to get a, my down payment on my house and you got me going through loopholes and hula hoops to get there, mm-hmm. you know? I just thought that was interesting. They, they, they were both vets and they were both at a, a, a stage, I think he was battling cancer or something, right? He was yeah, like, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, you would think that dying. he's he dying. He's yeah. on his deathbed and that's why he was like, you know what, I want to do this. Well, I, I know my time's against the clock. I'm going to do something before I pass but I think it's interesting a lot of Black vets, men, when they come home, it's like, nah, they don't have that renewed patriotism. Mm-hmm. If anything, their patriotism goes the other way when other they come way, home because yeah. of the Dow experience. Look, yeah. ahead, keep going, keep going. Yeah. Let's, 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 let's stay I, I, on. The- and one thing he said in the movie, I had to note, he was like, a cop killed another one of our babies. Uproar, basically, uproar begins and people want answers. First thing they do is put the child, the child's mother on TV. That's the way they figure if a child mother ain't ready to see shit burned down, then why should anybody else? shit is diabolical and i was like damn that's that true every time that happens and you see how that kind of subconsciously plays into what we see that the media is portraying right so it kind of gave perspectives from um a black family losing you know their son and then kind of also i think for the audience i think a lot of white folks probably watched this as well and it kind of became a little bit more empathetic seeing like what ex- what exactly is happening in the black community and what exactly we go through so i thought that part that scene was also one that kind of stood out a lot to me as well yeah it um... I, I think i think just to chime in there like in regards to the vet point you brought up like vets come back and they don't have no money like getting in touch with the va is difficult and hard so like even in the film itself, he got a job at a jan- as a janitor in a school to be able to allow his son to go to that school, right? And then as they're driving from one of their friend's house, who happens to be another student of that school in a predominantly white neighborhood, they get racially profiled by a police officer because of the color of their skin. So it's just like an interesting viewpoint to tie blackness into actually serving this country and the disrespect that African-American people receive from just so many different lenses. So I just thought, as far as Nate Parker, how he was able to tie in all of those themes into the film itself, um, it was intriguing. I, I even watched like some interviews and you mentioned like after World War II, there were certain African-American folks who were lynched in their actual uniforms themselves. So like, how do we win? How do we win? It, it, was, it was an amazing film and just brought so many thoughts to, to my mind for sure. Yeah. Now, and, and and we was talking about this off mic uh, before we logged on, uh, Kwame. And one of the things we talked about was so in the movie, it's filmed like somebody else is directing and filming it uh, because uh, a young brother wanted to uh, get the story of the son that was killed on camera and try to create awareness. So they kind of let's say they they took hostage the film crew to make sure everything went down and was filmed inside the police station. And they bring the director onto the jury pool. And when they bring him onto the jury pool, they, when they bring him onto the jury pool, they pretty much say that, um, like they're pretty much telling him, you have to decide uh, about how you feel about this. And he starts talking and he's saying, you know, I, I walked around here and I see all of this blue lives matter, blue lives matter. And he said, and I understand it and I get it, right? He said, but there's nothing to acknowledge the life that was taken in this young black boy, nothing. And they just kind of go on as if it didn't happen, it didn't exist. 
Like, I get that you're saying that your shield matter, your job matter. I get that. But a boy died, right? And a boy died for no other reason than his American skin. A country that, a country is, is, is known and famous for liberating people, not enslaving them. And America history, and one of the reasons why it was revered around the world the way it was, was that they liberated themselves, right? Like they, the United States liberated themselves from, from France. They liberated themselves from England. And that's why it was such a big thing. But then you turned around and enslaved an entire race, people, race. an entire race. Um, and then, you know, they, he starts talking about it. And I think he's just, he did a great job of talking about if I got to do what's right so that every other cop now stops and goes, let me take a beat before I racially profile. Let me take a beat before I shoot this person. Let me take a beat before I view them as a threat. Then let's do what we have to do. And I think that it was just, it was powerful. But man, that was, it was a great movie. I watched it for the second time yesterday. And I really think that that movie has to be nominated for Oscars. There's no mm -hmm. way that you watch that movie and you don't feel the emotion yeah. as it's happening. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, and I personally feel like Educational-wise, I know we're going to tap in. We're familiar with the story. Mm -hmm. I want people of other races, exactly. I want white Americans to really watch American Skin because I feel like they can get the actual learning value from the movie. Um, same scene that you were referring to, Jay. I thought a key scene was when they were going through the sequence of events. And you even saw with the jury selection. So most of the jury was people that were just in the building that weren't cops themselves. Yeah. The, the, the staff... Or and some some inmates, yeah. Something. You'll take it the good pays. Right. <laughs> 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 you know? Then then he actually even to, to 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 make a mix. He actually even brought some of the inmates, inmates that was yep. down in the in, in in the in the jail that's in the precinct there. But you saw the face, and I, and that's why a lot of it is just the understanding. Mm -hmm. When the cop is going through the sequence of events, and then okay, Nate Parker's son Kajani was shot by the uh, by the cop. And Nate Parker's doing the narration, kind of he's doing a cross-examination. He asks him, he's like, and then what did you do next? And then the cop says, I went home. And no matter, and and and, and some of the jury, they, they she might be a secretary, I'm not sure what her roles, but she works at the precinct. So this is probably a lady who feels very pro-police. The police pay mm -hmm. her. You know what I mean? She probably has relatives at the police as well. She's Absolutely. around police all day long. Yeah. She respects law and order and blue lives and this, that. And even her face lit up like, right or wrong, even if you was apprehending a, a criminal, you just went home? home. Like, <laughs> you, just, you, just, you just went it's home. Wild. And he was saying, I followed protocol. But you could say, but I don't think a lot of people from other, because these experiences are so far into them and mm -hmm. so far from the reality they know. Mm -hmm. Because I've often said, I was like, I didn't think about it, man. I was like, if from you was a little kid, man, your, your ball got caught in the tree, the officer went and brought it down to you. Your dad's best friend's officer. If, if, hey man, if all you had was positive interactions with cops your whole life, it probably would sound a little crazy to you when people are like, cops do this, cops do that. You're like, well, that never happened to me. What are you talking about? You know, because you're so disconnected. You only know your experience. Yeah. You don't know other people's experience. And I think that trial part was so key because other people was realizing like, wow, like it went down like that so I, I really I think it's a powerful flick I really want not only us to take it in and herald it I want America on a whole to take it in because I think and I think that's why he made it I think he really did it and, and even what they were doing on the documentary style the documentary was trying to educate 
other races of people and, and shine light into how this process goes. Because um, even in the film itself, you saw even by the end, the officers themselves started to second so guess, start understanding. You know, yeah. the, way, the way they the way they operate and, and the way they do things. Because you had you had that key element where the Latin officer was going against yeah. the Latin prisoner. Yeah. Prisoner, yeah. Right? Uh, you had a Latin woman officer. You had a black. Uh, captain, black captain, right? Yeah, that yeah. was in there trying to hold control. So you have it. I also, I came. I want you to touch on the point that we was talking about about the end of the movie. Yeah, uh, I want you to. I want you to hit that and share yeah, that, with that the part. Audience. Yeah, at the end of the movie, like, um, sorry to spoil it for folks that it's, not, it's already spoiled. Podcast, Don't right? worry. <laughs> <laughs> but at the end of the movie, I think it's a key scene that um, may get overlooked, right? And after where he, of course, he's about to walk out and. Um, with the other, with the officer Randall, I think is his name, the white officer, um, and he gets assassinated. Right, they shoot him in the head. Um, the news, a news clip comes on, right, on the TV, and it shows basically saying, talking about the whole situation, and then they say that he had mental mental health issues, right? So they just slapped it on, slapped mental health issues on a black man, right? And then directly after that scene, they show it's a sports anchor talking about basketball basically the next big black star right and i felt like they were basically that scene could go over your head because it's basically showing you how something that was so like impactful um gets easily uh distracted through sports things that us of course black men young black boys uh you know have a lot of we basically really like that right so because we play basketball and it's something that we hold dear to us it's easy for us to get distracted from real social injustice issues that quick right that i feel like the attention span for us sometimes is real small and these issues get so easily overlooked that we focus on you know what is the next who's the next big basketball star it's easy for us to distract us and i felt like that scene was basically saying that before they ended the movie and it was easily overlooked um, and it's something that I think happens all the time, right? Absolutely. It's easy to just get distracted by entertainment, right? That's what they do. So we don't really cause that true uproar that's needed. We, we, we had that debate in real time um, this past summer when some of the athletes were second guessing, you know, we're trying to do it simultaneously, right? We're trying to push this agenda while playing. Mm -hmm. But maybe if we continue playing and keep things going, it's going to distract from what was like. Maybe we just need to not play. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and you could understand Stand that. Yeah. battle with the thought. Kyrie mentioned a lot of athletes was like, maybe we should just not even play at all because we're trying to show y'all while playing and it's hitting a little bit more than maybe it did in the past, but maybe I'm not going to really, really get it till we just don't give you anything, no entertainment, just yeah. news. That's the only thing you can see on TV is news. news. And you, you can't run from this art. You can't, you have, you're forced to, Sit here and digest it. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy that they did play because I remember going back and forth with our frat brother Scoob on Twitter because I felt like they gave us a chance to control the narrative. Mm -hmm. When you look at the majority Especially of the yeah, when you look at did. the majority of people that broadcast the news, they don't look like us, right? And so one of the things I always do so I I watch CNN a lot, I watch MSNBC a lot, but I always make sure that I turn on Fox News at some point during the day. And you would be surprised about when something that's dead wrong happened, right? Like, for example, when the Elijah McClain death got brought up, right? And he was the one that was choked out by and given ketamine by officers in Colorado. They would not talk about this situation on Fox News. Like, they were talking about, like, animals, 
anything to just not talk. And I'm talk like, about that. one, why are y'all covering this on Fox News? And two, why are you not talking about the biggest topic? So I felt like when the NBA did it, like when, when um, what's the man that got shot in his back and he was paralyzed? Um, Jacob Blake. Jacob, when Jacob Blake got shot and NBA decided, yo, we're not playing. And we're not giving you no event. We're not. And the rest of the world, because they were like, oh, well, you know, NBA is the black league. Of course they're going to do this. Mm-hmm. But the rest of the American sports said, yo, we're not playing. Baseball was like, we're not playing. Hockey, we're not playing. Y'all figure this out. And it made other people stop and go, yo, we need to take them more seriously. Because when they say they're not going to do nothing, they shut down our yeah, whole entertainment. Those, those sports, right? And then people across the world started saying, we're not playing. So it gave a chance to control a narrative. Mm-hmm. And out of that, you saw good things come, right? Like they start using arenas as voting booths. Yeah. They start, so I was happy that they did um, actually play. I, I, and I think that's the difference with, with the NBA compared to even like, let's say the NFL and other professional sports mm-hmm. where you have a high representation, but we just don't control it. You that's know, we don't what it control is. the narrative, mm-hmm. we don't control the business aspect. And that's not to say we have full control in the, in the A, in the NBA, but the NBA and NFL are definitely in two different phases in um in in, in terms in terms of just the, the progression. And I so and I'm a transition I'm gonna use this to transition into the next topic of the sports because mm-hmm. I feel like when you just hit on it's different in the NBA and like you think about it. What is the color of the majority of sports broadcasters of the NBA? Black. Right? So you look about the people who's calling the games, the side comments that they're talking about, the majority of them are black. You may get one white person, right? Like on Fox, you might get like a Chris Collinsworth, but then he has like two black people with him, mm-hmm. right? Like you, I'm sorry, that's NFL. The, for, so for the basketball, you get Mark Jackson, Shaq, Kenny Smith on TNT. When they call plays, you'll get like a Reggie Miller. You'll get um, Chris Webber, yeah. right? Like you get all these different black faces that control the narrative. You also have Michael Jordan that owns and out, outright owns a franchise. He's black. He brought his franchise from the other black owner, Bob Johnson, who said, I'm going to transfer this black team to another black owner. You get people like Usher who get some stake and like the Atlanta Hawks. You get more black ownership. You don't have that in the NFL at all. Yeah. So you have problems like what they're talking about in the NFL now where they're not hiring no black coaches. And they said, oh, uh, so the Kansas City Chiefs, everybody knows about Patrick Mahomes. Mm-hmm. Usually you get your next head coach from whoever is the offensive coordinator or defensive coordinator, right? And if, you don't, if you don't think so, yeah. you think about the Seattle Seahawks a couple years ago, great offense. Richard Sherman, Earl Thomas, all these black defense people. Yeah, great yeah. defense, I mean. That defensive coordinator became the Atlanta, Dan Quinn, he became the Atlanta Falcons head coach for a bunch of years. This is how it's just normally done. Cal Shanahan, that's the coach in San Francisco, he was the offensive coordinator when in Washington with um, Robert Griffiths, and he was the offensive coordinator in Atlanta Falcons. It's how it's done. Now that all of these black coordinators are there and doing great, they're like, well, you know, Eric Benjamin doesn't call plays for Kansas City. But the other three Andy Reid assistants that called plays all got head coaching jobs. So now it's changed. We don't need to do that. Um, when you talk about the experience that they have, it's kind of like, well, it's always something else. And you start picking these people where it's like, the, yo, the Giants, and I'm still pissed off about this <laughs> as a Giants fan. Yeah. They hired a special teams coach. And don't get me wrong, it's nothing wrong with a special teams coach. 
but he didn't become a defensive coordinator, an offensive coordinator. He didn't call no plays. He didn't do none of that. The only thing he did do was be white and be on another organization that was successful. That was it. That's all he needed for his job description. But for these black coordinators, it's no. We, and so you get our former black athletes now that's speaking up. Shannon Sharp. Yeah. You get, um, damn, why am I looking? Frat. Um, Ryan Clark from that's talking about it, right? Like you're like, yo, look, what do we have to do as black people to get some form of ownership, some form of head coach? What because y'all keep hiring these people that do piss poor jobs, and then you just replace them with somebody else that does another piss poor job. Yeah. So that 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 was heavy, and I go with the last thing you said, and um, in terms of just the result, the coaching. And I think that's why there was a lot of, not a lot, but there, there was some pushback when Steve Nash, you know, got his first head coaching job. This yes. is back in the NBA now, mm-hmm. but he got it with the Brooklyn Nets. This is before Harding got there, but we already knew that this was going to be a highly competitive team. Yeah. It became even more competitive now, but we already knew this was a team that's going places. And, you know, the NBA kind of was like, damn, bro, like every time we get a, our first job, it's in a help to build a situation. Like, we're not yeah. just walking into a team that's like, and, and it was very reminiscent of when Steve Kerr, although he was coaching before, that wasn't his very first head coaching job, yeah. um, when Steve Kerr inherited the, the Warriors, a lot of people arguably felt like Mark Jackson built. built yeah. Like, he worked the best out of Steph when Steph was struggling early. Clay, Drake, he, he worked on that he drafted dynamic. those plays. Drafted those yeah. plays. You know, was was in the GM's head. So it was kind of like, even, even in the NBA, it's like, Man, like you're walking into such a good situation. Not to hate on you, but it's like we never walk into like we never walk yeah. into two superstars team that's very likely to go to the finals. Like we always come in on a team where it's like, all right, it's gonna be a work in progress. We wanna mm-hmm. draft some young talent, see how this go next year. But there's no three year, four year plan of winning anything, yeah, right? Exactly. So that so that I thought that was pretty interesting in terms of just even back to the NBA as as, as you mentioned. Um, also, when you had mentioned even in the summertime. We're keeping the narrative going and, and making that force um, America to, to focus. Because, you know, it's one thing. I like to check comments sometimes on social media posts. I feel like mm-hmm. comments really just give you a view into, like, especially, like, on big pages, ESPN, Bleacher Report, mm-hmm. what other people's mind is that. And over the summer, there was so much frustration from folks of other races, of course, mostly white Americans, um, about the fact of what was going on in the NBA, what was going on across sports all summer long. And all you can keep seeing in the comments is like, why do you guys have to keep bringing in politics and sports? Why do you guys have to keep bringing in politics and sports? And it's almost kind of like, you know, and other people have said this, like, bro, this is bigger than politics. This is not <laughs> politics. We're talking yeah. about society and people's lives. And it goes hand in hand with sports. You know, sports is just a sport and you might digest it as entertainment. You know, but this is not politics and sports. We're not only just talking about, you know, Who's your congressional district leader? Who's your mayor? Like we're talking about people's livelihood, and these people who are dying look exactly like the athletes that you so-called love so much. You love to wear their jersey and you yep. love to watch their plays. These are people who look exactly like them, and I think it hit a lot, even the sports community too, with uh, George Floyd because Stephen Jackson was good friends with George Floyd, and you're mm-hmm. showing like I'm not that far from this. Like, and that's a big thing. So he was like, well, LeBron, you have your million-dollar house and this, this, that. Like, everybody in his family don't live like that. I'm sure he's yeah. taking care of a lot of people in his family, but everybody that he knew growing up in Akron don't live like that. Yeah. And the same thing with Steven Jackson. You know what I mean? Like, that's his boy that he grew up with. 
but different life circumstances. Look what happened then. Look what happened. But it, I think it kind of helped to show that this stuff isn't that far off as you thought. Because going back to black currency, I think a lot of times other racists think that wealth can erase racism. And I think some black people even buy into that. Those of us that get to go to college and, you know, pursue uh, professions that, that are very lucrative. And so I've seen it before. People might lose themselves and yeah. think that, oh, I'm, I'm in a new club that that can, but we often always get a reminder, whether it's through an interaction with law enforcement or something happens at a job. So my, you know, you might have climbed up the economic ladder, but you haven't completely climbed out of the, the racial structure yeah. um, that exists. And, and back to what you were saying, Jay, in terms of just the coaches, um, it, it's, it's a lot. The NFL doesn't have the power within the players the way the way that um, the NBA does. Um, as you mentioned, that there was an NBA, there's a black NBA owner and other uh, uh, black um, wealthy folks who have significant stakes in sports teams and even the Hornets. That was owned by Bob Johnson, black billionaire who started BT, sold it. Front. You know, frat sold it to. Uh, that was a plug. <laughs> um, he passed it to Jordan. You know what I mean? He passed it to Jordan. So that kind of goes to that whole passing of generational. generational wealth, you know, yeah. he made sure he sold it to another black person. Somebody said the dollar circulate, and he could have sold that to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. He sold it to another black billionaire. He sold it to MJ. You know, and if MJ wants to sell it, man. Sell it to, to, to Robert Smith next, Oprah, Jay-Z, any, any one mm-hmm. of the other black billionaires that we have. But the NFL doesn't have that. And, um, you know, there's the Rooney Rule, all this. I think Shannon Sharp did a good job of saying, like, at the end of the day, it's just going to be hard to convince. This ownership is the key. It's going to be hard to convince these guys on telling them who they should hire and who they shouldn't hire. And at the end of the day, you could have the impressive resume. You could have you could have all the things on paper. Yeah. They're going to do what they want to do. It's their team. They own the team. And that's really why ownership really is the key. Because it's like, when you own, you can make decisions. Whether it's the right decision, morally, or the wrong decision. Mm-hmm. But it's your paper, so you can do it how you want. And ultimately, they're going to hire who they want to hire. Even, even if everything on paper says you should go and answer A, if B's are what they want to go with, they're going to go with B. Pretty much, it's their organization. Pretty and, much, and that's and that's kind of just just the nature of things. Another dope thing that we had for the culture this past week was a long overdue versus. Yes, you know this was supposed to happen before <laughs> the new year even started, before we even got into twenty twenty one. You know, I heard somebody got COVID, and I heard it was technical difficulties. Yeah. I don't know, there was a lot of a lot of back and forth, but uh, it finally took place uh, Thursday. Past we had Ashanti versus Keisha Cole. And, um, you know, since we have you guys here, uh, Black Currency, we want to talk about it from two aspects, just cultural, but also, um, you know, versus I'm not too sure exactly all the corporate players that's behind it, but it was started by Swiss Beats and Timbaland, two successful black producers. So we also want to talk about it from a business aspect, just the expansion of versus and branding sponsorships throughout this. You're starting to see a little bit more prominent now. You know, throughout the verses, you, you heard the Ciroc plug a couple times, you know. Mm-hmm. So you make sure Diddy's involved in that. Uh, look like Doritos is a sponsor now, too. They are. You know, you yeah. make sure you had that Doritos bag uh, placed yeah. right behind both of their shoulders. So <laughs> you looked at it, you had to see Doritos, you know. Like, corporation versus is, is a, it's a thing. You can't deny it. It's, it's a thing. So it's only smart if you're a corporation, you have a product, is to get in. This is, this is, this is um, you know, key marketing. 
So just wanted to, you know, pick your brains on that. Um, how, how you viewing that and seeing the expansion of, of versus uh, with with corporate sponsorship and just the expansion they have taking place. Yeah, I feel like with versus, you see how much folks, of course, tap in, right? Like, I feel like it gets so much views. Like, a lot of people are anticipating, you know, the next versus, right? So I think with them having such an impact on, you know, our current culture, um, it's definitely a way where hopefully we can start to see them, like, in- incentivizing those black sponsorships. I would love to see versus be you know, do something like that where they start to incentivize, you know, and start to promote black businesses with their platform because there's so many folks that are, you know, following versus and that are anticipating what else they're going to do. So I think they have the platform to be able to, uh, in a way, you know, bring us forward, right? By using um, artists that we grew up with, you know, that we grew up listening to. Um, So hopefully, that's what I'm hoping to see with their platform. Um, I would say that last versus was very, very interesting, right? Keisha who'd, Cole. Who'd you have winning? Um, I thought Ashanti Loki was gone, you know. I had her taking it from the get. Um, I don't know who y'all had, who y'all had taken it. I, so, it, it kind of went the way I thought it was going to go. I had Keisha Cole taking it with the music. Yeah. And I still think Keisha Cole won with the music, honestly. But I think the way it went down mm-hmm. and the vibe, I think Ashanti ended up actually winning the verses. Mm. I, I think the crazy thing is... I think Keisha Cole's music did hit harder. And harder, was, right? I, mean, I just personally feel like her catalog is better. A little bit more, you know, better, yeah. I think just the vibe of being late, the back and forth, that I, just, I think Ashanti played the game better. Yeah. So she, she ended up winning. I think the crazy thing is that going into the battle, everybody was upset with Ashanti <laughs> because she had got COVID, so it had got... Push back. Yeah, push back. Um, and then it got pushed back again, and it was rumored that it was pushed back because of Ashanti. So everybody was so upset because we had to wait so long. And then the day of the battle, Keisha Cole, one mistake is she's running late. So now she can't do mic check. People have waited a month, and yeah. now they're waiting an hour into the date. So now they're more aggravated. And all that aggravation people had towards Ashanti, they just turned it towards Keisha Cole because Keisha (laughs) Cole happened to be late that night. Um, So I felt bad for Keisha Cole in that aspect. I Mm -hmm. think it was close. Um, I think it was 11-9 no matter how you wanted to call it. Uh, I tend to think it was Keisha, but I think it was more so because some of the rounds, I call them... What the fuck is this round, right? Like when they when it when <laughs> it was the two parts of it was right. It was kind of like, yo, what are y'all playing? Yeah, yeah, Why are y'all playing yeah. this? And then um, <laughs> the song with um, Keisha Cole featuring Lil Wayne versus I don't even know what song that was that Ashanti was playing. Like I kind of was like. Yo, what it, why are you playing this in the verses and you got other stuff? Right. right? Like it was another it's like those, yeah. what the fuck round. And I think Keisha Cole pretty much I think she got those what the fuck rounds. And that pretty much put her over that edge. But I think that I think it was close and I think Ashanti surprised a lot of people with not just the selection, but the her actual singing along with it. Cause it was Keisha Cole gonna blow away Ashanti singing. Yeah. But Ashanti really uh held her own. Mm. What's your thoughts, Kwon? Yeah, this is a time I was underwhelmed, to be honest. Like, I had high hopes for this versus all of the talk and discussion prior to it. I was excited. So, like, one for it to be pushed back because of COVID, which is understandable. I get it. But then, like, for Keisha Cole to be a whole hour and a half late to the versus itself, like, that pissed me off, I'm not going to lie. And then it took, like, a half-time break during the actual versus itself. So, 
I don't know. Like, I had positive vibes and positive feedback to it, but I thought it was ghetto. I, I, was, <laughs> um, I thought, the fact they weren't in the, I, I thought it was ghetto, bro. I'm not going to lie. I thought it was not ghetto. I thought the fact they weren't in the sound quality was trash. Um, but just respecting their artistry is a dope concept that Swiss, as well as Ken came up with, to really give back to the culture, right? Like, that's what it's really all about. So, the hair Ashanti tits, the hair Keisha tits. Um, I think Ashanti won. I think she's a class act. I think the respect she showed, even though Keisha was acting crazy, even though she was late, just being mad unprofessional. Like, I, I thought Ashanti definitely won it all, but I was underwhelmed and I thought it, it could have been done better. But I know for future instances it will. Um, so, yeah, overall, it was, it, was cool. it was cool. I think that was a key thing you said too, Quan, because um, my oldest sister, who worked in um, music PR for years, she said this. And um, I saw one of my female friends post on social media. They both, she said this as well, basically that um, sometimes with artists, it's not so much your catalog um, and, and, and the content you have only as it is the person you are, right? As it is the person you are. And uh, basically the post went something of this nature of saying that Ashanti, even though she hasn't made music recently or hit music recently, that she'll always be booked and busy because so many people just say she's just a pleasure to work with. Mm -hmm. Whether it's promoters, whether it's, she's just easy to work with, always pleasant, this, this, that. And I think that even just goes with what we talk about business here a lot, right? Professionalism. I think that mm -hmm. just goes a long way even too in just our personal careers and things of that nature that sometimes a person that sticks around isn't, you see it in sport, it's not always necessarily the best person. It's just the person that people just feel like they could deal with easier. Yeah. I, mean, I could work with you more, you know? Like, and I'll even work with your shortcomings more than the person who's good with it, but the person who's good with it gives me such a headache that I would rather deal with the person who might be a little bit slow. I gotta, so, yeah. but you know what? Always on time, always easy going, less drama. You know what? I'll deal with you in the slowness. You know yeah, what I mean? Exactly. I'll yeah. I know you're not going to like raise my blood pressure, you know, or feel like you're entitled because you're good at what you do. So even something that that uh, we could keep in mind, and even our own personal endeavors and, and things of that nature. Um, as we were talking on sports, uh, I didn't want to skip over this event that took place, um, and it ties into business as well, what this brother did in his career. We lost the legend, Henry Hank Aaron, um, who had a marvelous career, Hall of Fame baseball player. Um, I would say possibly the thing he's most known for was when he broke uh, Babe Ruth's 715 um all-time home run list and Barry Bonds has since gone on then to surpass um, Hank Aaron so now you have big Barry Bonds at the top Hank Aaron second third Babe Ruth but at the time in 73 when 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 Hank Aaron was getting ready to do that um, and this is post civil rights era too right like I said when, yeah. when the 70s but it was very it was it wasn't a warm welcome it was not a warm welcome that whole season leading up as he was inching closer to 715 um, you know, there was a lot of um, hate mail, death threats, a lot mm -hmm. coming towards Hank Aaron because um, Babe Ruth is considered like this mythical figure um, to just American nostalgia, and particularly to white America. He's, you know, was a member of the Yankees way back in, in, in the day. And this whole idea of a black athlete breaking that record was angering, angering a, a, yeah, a, a lot, lot of, folks, of white folks yeah. at that time. And they was, you know wanted him with, with, with death threats and, and Hank Aaron spoke about um, you know he didn't really get to enjoy 
that major accomplishment because of what was taking place. Mm -hmm. But I think a key thing from a business aspect is a documentary on Netflix called The Black Godfather. Mm -hmm. And it's about this um, older gentleman named Clarence Avon, mm -hmm. who's just been such an integral part in just tying so many things together from music to film to politics. He's, he's the plug. Like, for real, for real. Yeah. He's, he is the plug. Like, he's did things that helped Barack Obama's campaign. He's gotten certain artists linked to certain, like, and just all different things, not even just like entertainment, politics, like he's the plug. But one of the key things he did, and, and they talk about in this documentary, um, is that he saw corporate alignment. And the alignment was Hank Aaron was playing for the Atlanta Braves. Coca-Cola is headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia. And basically Clarence Avon went up to the Coca-Cola office, met with the president, and was like, you know, niggas drink a lot of Coke. Like, my community likes this product. You got a nigga that's good at baseball right here in this town. Why isn't he advertising Coca-Cola for like, that's sales? You know, like that's it go hand in hand, you know? Um, and that's that's how Clarence Avon and the that's kind of the way he went about his business. He's very blunt like that mm -hmm. and spoke directly. But, you know, it's kinda like we were talking about it with versus earlier versus earlier. It talks about alignment and marketing. Mm -hmm. And that was just an example of um, perfect corporate alignment, but maybe they did see it, but they didn't see it because of the race factor. But as an example, it was like, you headquartered right here. The Braves played right, right here. here. This is the top baseball player right here. I could speak as a representative of the black community. This is our go-to soda. This is what we drink. Don't you think a top black athlete that plays in this city, where you got, don't you think he should endorse it and... What ended up happening was uh, Hank Aaron's uh, Coca-Cola endorsement was one of the largest um, endorsements of that time for any mm -hmm. athlete, black or white. But I just thought that was so that that was just key and I was just interested um, of early black business partnerships with sports. But rest in peace, Hank Aaron, amazing mm -hmm. legacy um, on the baseball diamond and, and, and even off. Uh, Jay, I'm sure you got something to say as you played baseball for years, so I'm sure that that you know. Touched you like the the Hank Aaron story was like he was a he was a god when we was growing up. Like everybody says, Chick dig the long ball, and he was the king of the long ball when I was growing up. Like it was Hank Aaron. That's who you want to hit more home runs than anybody else. But I also it makes me think that the journey when you like when you going through the journey towards greatness, you're never appreciated on that journey. Like or if you are, it's very rarely. They hated Hank Aaron. And it bothered me to some extent that they tried to whitewash what he went through and just talk about, oh, you know, but it was good because when they ran on the field, like it was one sportscaster, they ran on the field and it was two white men that was congratulating him as he was rounding third. Fam, you think two white fans jumping out of the stadium and patting me on my back? For a record that I broke, that I received three thousand death threats a day. Right, right, right? like three thousand death threats a day. Wow. It takes away from that, like it doesn't. Like for him to go through what he went through, he wasn't appreciated then. And now that he's dead, it's kind of, oh, let's give him all of these flowers. flowers yep. Like let's give him all of these flowers, especially from the same people who you either didn't like him or your parents didn't like him at all. Uh, so like that bothered me a lot, but it was it was it's great to see him finally be recognized. It'll be much better to see people get that kind of recognition when they're actually going oh, yeah, through yeah, that journey. Exactly. Absolutely.
right? Especially when they're black. People, they hated Martin Luther King. I was, I was just when, about to say that. Bernice King, his daughter, said the exact thing on, like, his, on the MLK that had just passed. She's like, let's be honest. America hated my father when he was alive. He was voted one of the top uh, most hated, hated people. people in America in, in, in the 60s. You know, even in the year that he was assassinated. Like, he was assassinated. Like, there was that much hate that there was a plan to kill him. So, you know... Let's not all herald now and act like the love was always there for my dad. Like, you know? He was assassinated under FBI under, watch. Right, under FBI watch. <laughs> right, but like, you think about him, the Malcolm X's, you think about, you know, even Floyd Mayweather, right? Like, they hated him when he was coming up on Rocky Marciano record, right? Rocky Marciano, who didn't fight a legit black boxer ever. Ever. They got him to fight Joe Lewis on Joe Lewis' deathbed. Yeah, when Joe Lewis. So, so you 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 talk about all of these athletes and leaders in the black community that along their journey, people hated them, but when you look at other people's journey, like you look at Tom Brady's journey to break uh, Joe Montana record, everybody celebrated him. Bill Belichick, they celebrated him. People hated him while he was going through that. One of the reasons why Jordan wasn't hated as much was because. Magic was hated because Magic had won five. Jordan just needed to win six. He was breaking another black man's record. Right. But they hated Magic at first in the Showtime Lakers and thinking that they was cocky. Right? Like you, you, so I just want us to become more celebrated on this journey in our life. Like, give me my flowers when I'm alive. You'll need to celebrate me when I'm dead. I agree. But I, I think kind of like we were saying with American Skin, I think that work, that's not really an internal job. That, mm-hmm. that's, that sounds like it's more work that white American, other demographics in America have to do first and accept and, and, and question and challenge within themselves as to why they do that or why they perpetuate those um, ill feelings, you know, before, so so we can get on this we uh, deserve. Kwame, Keem, it's been love, man. At the Black Currency, guys. Word. At the Black Currency Appreciate on Instagram. Y'all. They gave yeah. y'all a, a lot of background on what they have coming forth, um, especially with Black History Month um, coming forth. There's going to be a lot of good stuff they have, so... Get on on their social media page because, as they mentioned, they have a slew of different um, tools and phases that they're going to drop that's going to really help push the uh, financial acumen and knowledge amongst uh, black America. Dr. J, you got the hood scripture for us today. Take us home, brother. Yeah, this is by, this is Lullaby by Belly. Uh, Just give you some of the words from this song. Uh, It really hits home for the hood scripture. Wonder if God heard me pray when I was trying to repent. If he didn't, I know he heard my mother cry over rent. Then you wonder why the mood in this room is so tense. No offense, but I don't really got nowhere to go vent. Oh yeah, success is like a drug and I've been high on the scent. Feel like I've wasted all the money and the time that I spent. Maybe the tears inside my eyes had to blind me with revenge. I told her even if we crash, I'm going to ride to the end. There I go lying again. I don't know why I pretend. Hold up. Let me try this again. Lord, you know I never open up, abusing drugs, thinking I was never dope enough. She's over me when I'm the one that she's supposed to love. At least my heart is broken enough for the both of us. They told me to play your part. Boy, we different, you smart. Let her lay in your bed. Don't ever let a woman in your heart. Still around the same ones that I was with from the start, though the distance got us drifting apart. Felt betrayed, swear to God to this day, man, this shit hit my heart. Wanted to shine so bad that I got left in the dark. Still love you. Can't help but see that kid in the park. Running around the town looking for some shit we could start. Any issues, I was right there with it. I bought my dream house, but I've been having nightmares in it. That's poetry, man. You can't tell me that's not poetry. Woo. 
From the Block to the Boardroom, <laughs> episode 11. Trev Stars, Dr. J, Black Currency, Keem and Kwame. Appreciate you guys joining us today. That's a wrap. Appreciate y'all. Love, Absolutely. Man. See y'all next week. Peace.